installment of London Aesthetics Forum for this term. Um, and it's a pleasure to welcome Dermot Costello from the University of Warwick, who um, I guess has two general projects, thinking about the relation between philosophical aesthetics and art theory, and also obviously a project on photography. And consonant with that has been working on two books. So one of your books, the book on photography, is coming it's out. Done. It's done. At last. Right. It's coming out in May. Uh, I think they've pushed it back to October, but it is coming. It's coming out. Yeah, it is coming out. <laughs> There's going to be a session on it at the ASA. Uh, that's possible. Yeah. So hopefully it will come out. Yeah. By the time of the session at the ASA, um, and you're also working on another book, Art After Aesthetics. When is that? That's not done. I can see it in your face. It's not done. That's coming. Um, <laughs> but there exist many articles on both of these subjects which you can already um, access. Um, and just to put in a plug for the British Society of Aesthetics, which sponsors our series, um, and which began sponsoring this series under Dermot's chairmanship of the British Society of Aesthetics, so we thank him in retrospect for starting this funding ball rolling. And um, join me in welcoming Dermot. Thanks. Thanks, Lisa. Okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about abstraction in photography. Um, and I'll just preface this by saying uh, the paper that I set out to write is not the paper that I did write, because the paper I set out to write was going to be about whether the meaning of the term abstraction in, when applied to pictures meant had any sort of common ground with the way the term abstraction is used in philosophy to talk about the removal of the inessential and so on. And so I thought I was going to write this paper about the relation between abstraction in talking about pictures and talking about philosophy. And then I realized when I turned to abstraction in photography that there was just this kind of lack of any clarity as to what abstraction is in photography. And so uh, that's particularly apparent when you look at the examples of what gets classed as abstraction in photography. It's just hugely diverse, and there's a real question as to whether all those things that are typically called abstract photographs could be abstract according to one single definition, uh, which I was doubtful about. So I ended up kind of, as it were, going back um, and writing a paper that had to be written, for me at least, before I could write the paper I wanted to write, and this is that paper. Um, so um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about, I'm going to try and motivate a conception of abstraction in pictures in general. So I'm going to talk about what's abstraction in depiction. Um, then I'm going to, that's going to give me the word abstract. Um, and then I'm going to talk about what photography is because you can't have an account of abstraction in photography without having an account of photography. And if you've got a bad account of photography, then your conception of abstract photography will be shackled from the outset. And I think it's because, and I, I here I have to declare an interest, I'm party to a particular line in uh, philosophy of photography called the new theory of photography. Um, and we, we all dislike the old theory of photography, boo, hiss, uh, call that orthodoxy just to give it a prejudicial title. Um, so it's because there is a dominant default conception of photography that I think abstraction strikes at least philosophers as a problem for photography 
when I don't think it really is a problem for photography. It's just a problem if you have a bad theory of photography. Okay, so um, there's no clarity about the intention of this term, and if there's no clarity about the intention, then you can't pin down the extension. Um, and that's, uh, so I've talked about this, so I'll just move on. Okay, so this is going to be my approach. What is abstraction? What is photography? What is abstraction in photography? You could not accuse philosophers of not being sufficiently plodding in how they proceed. <laughs> so I am going to plod uh, through this. Right, okay. But when I get to the end, there'll be a payoff. The payoff will be, um, I'm going to, this is very rough and ready. I'm going to try and give you a typology or a taxonomy of kinds of things called abstraction in photography that are typically talked about as if they were, you know, one thing, but I think there are differences to be drawn between them. Um, now, when I've given this paper before, people get upset about calling something faux abstract or weakly abstract, so let me just say at the beginning, it's descriptive, right? I don't mean that if you're strongly abstract, you know, like that's better than being merely weakly abstract. This is not the gym. Right? So, um, so this is just, as it were, a descriptive taxonomy. Um, just trying to do some kind of clarificatory work. Okay. So what is abstraction? That's my first question. I'm going to uh, ask this question with respect to both art theory and philosophy. Um, and let me start with a few disclaimers. I, I suppose these aren't really, aren't really necessary in this context, but in some contexts where I talk about this more half theoretical context, they are. So I'm not interested in economic abstraction. I'm not interested in social abstraction or economic abstraction with the abstraction of money and capital, social abstraction, you can imagine what that would be. Um, in terms of way abstraction is talked about in art theory, what I'm talking about would tend to be called formal abstraction, but I'm unhappy with that term because, as used by art theorists, it tends to suggest an antipathy between form and content such that things that are formally abstract can't have sort of rich semantic content. And I don't think that's true. Um, and with informal abstraction, I'm not interested in any of these three forms. So spiritual abstraction would be the idea that abstraction somehow transcends um, mere everyday reality. Expressive abstraction would be the idea that abstraction sort of communicates some sort of inner mood. And the intrinsic view, which I'm not actually directly concerned with here, but which I'm sympathetic to, would be the view that photography is intrinsically abstract, all photography, in the respect that insofar as it cuts, on the whole, something from a wider context, it abstracts, right? So I think there's good reason to think that, in some sense, the term all photography is abstract. Okay. Right, so all I'm interested in is a very simple question, what do all pictures called abstract have in common? Okay, so first of all, with art theory. Uh, now this will be um, bread and butter to some people and completely unfamiliar to others. I mean, who here is at all familiar with kind of great mode? Yeah, okay, all right. So. Abstraction, as used by Greenberg, means simply what is not figurative. Um, so an abstract picture would be one in which we can see no recognizable three-dimensional objects. And this is important for Greenberg. It's going to permit what he calls optical depth, but not trompe l'oeil. And optical depth would be the kind of depth where things appear to either recede or 
um, come forward relative to other things, but not in a naturalistic, reductionistic space. So here would be an example. Can I adjust the lighting? That's going to be the ones at the front. Is that possible? Yeah. The thought would be, well, there's a relation of depth between that colour and that colour, but this one seems to uh, come forward. Maybe you're not seeing it that way. But that there is some sort of relation, which is not an illusionistic relation between the colours. Or that one's very obvious, right? The way the blue pops out. Um, so this would be committed on the Greenbergian account. This would count as optical abstraction. Um, but three-dimensional illusions of depth would not be permitted. Now, that distinction uh, with respect to particular pictures is not always clear cut, right? So some figure ground relations seem to, as it would be undecidable in relation um, to whether they are merely optical or illusionistic. So I'm going to show you some images from Philip Guston's transitional work of the late 50s, early 60s, uh, known as an abstract impressionist at the time. Um, so if you look at these, oh, that seems out of focus. Uh, if you look at these images, and then I show you the ones that come next. That one's called Tower. Now you can read that as just being optically abstract, with the black marks are in front of the grey marks. But you could also read it as being the beginning of a form, right? And I think that's particularly apparent in the works just before he actually morphed into a figurative painter. Painter. Uh, that one's called Head. Um, where there's some sort of ambiguity as to whether these are, in Greenberg's terms, merely optical or three-dimensionally abstract. Okay, um, so there are some uh, tricky cases on margins, right? So in the Greenbergian story, which is very famous, uh, Greenberg gives you a history of, of art from roughly the 1860s to the 1960s, say from Manet's Olympia to Morris Lewis's Alpha Pi, and he says, look, there's a pattern here and the pattern is a gradual surrendering of the third dimension. Right? So uh, what happens is space becomes shallower until the point where the depicted space, which is say the space that you see in the picture, becomes identified with the literal space of the picture surface. So how does that happen? Think of things like cubist collage, where you have um, aspects of the depiction actually attached physically to the surface of the painting, right? So you might see a bit of cane chair backing, uh, which is some, something that's been depicted in the painting, is actually being stuck to the surface of the painting, right? So eventually the thought is that the space becomes shallower and shallower until the point where it's identified with the surface of the painting, right? Now, there's, Greenberg gets in a lot of trouble because people think he's being prescriptive and he's saying this is how art should be. He claims it's purely descriptive and retrospective. He's just tracking the best art of the last hundred years. Well, okay, so even so far as it's the best, then it's clearly implicitly normative. It tracks Greenberg's taste, right? But this history um, 
can be nicely illustrated in individual artistic works. So I'm going to show you one. And I'm curious to see the first point at which you know who I'm showing you. All these slides are by the same artist. Anyone yet? It's like pop quiz, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, it is Mondrian. Yes. Okay, so now I'll just show you the slides. You can relax. Um, <laughs> and there we are. Right? Yeah. That is the Greenbergian, the famous Greenbergian story inside one particular herb. Right, now, here's what Greenberg has to say about it. Um, and the bit that I'm interested in is the bit in, it's supposed to be in grey, I don't think this shows up as grey. The first mark made on a canvas destroys its literal and utter flatness, and the results in the marks made on it by artists like Mondrian is still a kind of illusion, but suggests a kind of third dimension, only now strictly pictorial, strictly optical. Right? So no objects are depicted, but there are nonetheless relations of depth and so on. Okay. So this would be... Uh, my illustration, two works by Mondrian, of the way in which one, sorry, two works by Guston, the way in which one mark is sufficient to break the literal flatness of the surface. Right, now, what's interesting about Greenberg is what he thinks is permissible and not permissible according to this uh, way of understanding abstraction, right? Again, it's the bit in grey. What has been abandoned in principle is the, is the is the representation of kind of space that recognizable objects can inhabit. All recognizable entities exist in three-dimensional space, and the barest suggestion of a recognizable entity suffices to call up associations of that kind of space. So as an example of that, um, look at these works, uh, which are very interesting works in terms of the relation between figuration and abstraction by the American West Coast artist Richard Diebenkorn, mid-50s you've seen here. So if you look at the relation between these works and those works. Um, if you sort of hold up in front of your face, your hand, and obscure this bit of this painting, which you can see represents a cliff and a sea, right? you'll just see an abstract painting on the right-hand side. And similarly, if you take you know, detail on the right-hand side of this painting. So you can, you can see what Greenberg's getting at. Once you have something that can be read, as the corner of a table, then you, then optical abstraction gives way to illusionistic space, right? And that's what he's saying is gradually uh, receding. Okay. So, so much for what abstraction means in art theory. What does it mean in philosophy? Um, okay. So, actually, it's amazing. No philosophers, despite there being a massive now literature on depiction, really talk about abstraction. So, Richard Volheim, in painting as an art, has one and a half pages right, in a 400 page book on abstraction. Um, the only one I've come across who really talks about it is uh, Michael Newell, who I'll talk about in a minute. He's coming here, isn't he? Next yeah. Right, okay. So, you can say I talked about it. <laughs> uh, okay, so. I'm going to talk about Volheim, and I'm going to talk about Newell. So Volheim famously has, and this is very, very rough already, has a theory of depiction in terms of what he calls seeing in and twofold experience. And the thought here is really simple. Go back to these, and the thought would be, 
there's a what Baldwin calls there's a configurational aspect, which is just to say there are certain colours and marks arrayed on a surface, right? And in the configurational aspect, you can see something, i.e., this woman sitting on a chair in the sunshine, right? So that's what he calls the recognitional aspect. And the claim is that our experience of pictures is twofold in the sense that we are simultaneously aware of the configurational and the recognitional dimensions of our experience, right? That's what it is to see something in a flat surface whilst not being under the illusion that you're in the presence of that something. So you might think, on this account, if that's what twofoldness is, then abstract painting is going to be onefold, right? Because there's, there is a configurational aspect, but there's not a recognitional aspect. You don't see something in the surface. Right? But Goldheim rejects that, um, and he says, no, look at paintings like this. These are Hans Hoffmann. Um, this, is, this is the one Goldheim actually uh, reproduces. That's Pompey. It's in the uh, Tate Modern, I guess. On Tate's website, they have it sideways, which I think is quite funny, but which is wrong. <laughs> anyway, but you can you can if you you can find that yourself. Anyway, that's um, and he says that there are relations of depth here. These shapes seem to float in front of the shape, the the background. Right. So this painting is twofold. It's just twofold in the distinctive sense. Right. So the way Goldheim runs that, and it sounds a little bit circular actually. He says, okay. Abstract paintings and figurative paintings are both representational, but they're representational in different ways. Right? So you both, in both cases you see something in the surface, but what you see is different. And in one case, what you see is picked out by representational concepts, and in the other it's picked out by abstract concepts. And this is where it sounds a bit circular, right? Um, what does he mean by representational or abstract concept? Well, a representational concept is like, bouquet of flowers, dancer, you know. Uh, abstract concept would be irregular polygon, space, overlapping rectangles, right? So you can talk about this without using the word abstract. Okay, so the important point here is that abstract versus figurative is a distinction within representation. It's not a distinction between representation and something non-representation. They're both kinds of representations. So here's what Volheim actually says. Abstract art tends to be an art that's at once representational and abstract. Most abstract paintings display images, to put it another way. The experience we are required to have in front of them is certainly one that involves attention to the marked surface, but is also one that involves an awareness of depth. Okay. Now, so far I see nothing here that Greenberg would need to disagree with. Right? The two accounts seem to me entirely consistent. Okay, here's Michael Newell. Michael Newell wants to make a name for himself in relation to abstraction, so he's going to say, look, my account's different to both Greenberg and Volheim. It's less restrictive than Vol um, It's more restrictive than Volheim. It's less restrictive than Greenberg. So what does he say? Um, here's his account of abstraction. So it involves relations of seeing relations of depth, overlap, transparency, or what he calls non-veridical seeing without recognition of volumetric form. That sounds like a mouthful. It's actually really straightforward. Non-veridical seeing just means you're seeing something that isn't physically there, right? There is no physical depth between the two surfaces that seem to be receding relative to one another. So you're non-veridically seeing. 
Um, and you are seeing without recognition a volumetric form in the sense there's no depiction of a three-dimensional object, right? Despite the fact that you are seeing relations of depth and overlap and so on. Okay. Um, so if you were to see volumetric form, then you would be in Volheim's terms figuratively rather than abstractly seeing it. So, you know what that's? It's like the height of, it's like, this is the kind of work that really divides people in the art world, or it did 40 years ago when people cared about work like this. It's like, um, this was like the height of Greenberg's canon, and it was dis derisively dismissed by Lucy Lippard as being visual music. Right? <laughs> so this is Jules Zelitsky's spray painting from the 19, late 1960s, early 70s, and, and Newell says, look, my account can capture the respect in which you can see into these. You can see relations of depth. It's like looking into a haze or a mist, but it's not, there's not actually a haze or a mist. There's not physical depth there. So it's non-veridical seeing of depth without volumetric form. Okay. And there's Clem and Alitsky. And if this were like one of those, you know, those caption competitions in <laughs> newspapers. Um, so only art stories would find this funny, but anyway, so I know a little bit about art history, so I find it funny. Um, so Greenberg was famous for going around artist studios and telling them where to sort of chop the edges of their paintings off. So Greenberg was saying, you know, you know, gee, Jules, if you, you know, lop a couple of feet off the right, you've got yourself a real peach. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, but enough about that. Right, so here's the thing about Newell. His approach is grounded in the premises of evolutionary vision science, right? So his account's going to have to be consistent with those premises. So the key claim about uh, vision is that it's evolved, right? It's evolved for recognitional purposes. It's evolved to detect objects and properties and kinds in our immediate perceptual environment, right? If there's a line there, you want to know about it, right? Okay. Um, so it's particularly cued, vision scientists think, to um, detect the kinds of features that subtend recognition, right? So edges, colors, textures. And uh, Newell, and I'm rushing over this here, does a lot of really detailed work in his book where he talks about the difference between uh, Y-shaped vertices and T-shaped vertices and how we read those in paintings. I'm just sort of glossing over all that. But the important point is that vision detects features that subtend the recognition of objects. So if you've got an account of abstraction that is supposed to be consistent with that, it's going to need to meet these two conditions. First of all, it's going to have to allow that images can depict kinds and properties, but not objects. Right? Otherwise, it's going to collapse back into depiction. Um, and only kinds and properties of a certain kind, Newell says, that is, shapes, lines, and marks depicted as parallel or near parallel to the picture plate. He has a lot of detailed material in his book as to why that's the case before the point at which you start seeing volumetric form. Okay, um, so you don't really need all this detail. So what you need is this. You need that um, for a painting to count as abstract on this sort of vision scientific approach that Newell's interested in, it needs to be capable of being seen non-veridically as supporting non-veridical seeing of overlapping, transparent, and interpenetrating surfaces. So let me give you some examples of that to make it um, tractable. So this is Bryce Marden, American painter, painting in a studio. This would be a perfect example of what uh, Newell has in mind, right? 
there's clear relations of overlapping, of depth, and so on, but there's no recognition of volumetric form. That's the claim. Right? If there is, Newell's going to have to bite the bullet and say it's not abstract. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so the important point for Newell is that it's engaging our recognitional capacities, but it's engaging them without recognizing three-dimensional objects. Yeah. Now, the question I have about this is Newell presents this as somehow different. I mean, it's different in terms of its grounding. It's motivated by vision science. But is it at all different to the accounts we see? Right? I, I'm not convinced that it is, right, for several reasons. Um, I won't... But in the interest of times, so I won't go through my reason. I'll just give you what I take to be an account that involves all three saying exactly the same thing. And that's this, right? So an abstract painting is twofold in Richard Volheim's sense, in a distinctive sense. It permits non-veridical, that's Michael Newell, perception of depth and spatial relations between lines, forms, and planes, or what Greenberg would call optical illusion. But it rules out perception of three-dimensional objects in illusionistic space, or what Michael Newell would call volumetric form, on pain of collapsing back into this picture. This is just to say that I think those three authors are giving you one coherent, mutually consistent account of what abstraction is in depiction in general. Right? Um, differently motivated, but there's nothing there that I can see that I, individual authors would need to have trouble with in each other. But what we want to know is what is abstraction in photography? Okay. Uh, if only I could get straight to that question, but I'm going to take a little detour through the question, what is photography now, right, before I can get to that. Um, why is that? Well, simply that I don't want to be hostage to a particular view of photography, which is a very widespread assumed view, which I disagree with. Right? And if I'm hostage to that, I'm going to have problems accommodating the kind of um, view of abstraction I've just given you. Okay, so what I want to fight, essentially, is the idea, what I want to contest is the idea that something especially problematic about the very idea of abstract photography. I don't think there's anything problematic about it at all, actually. I just think if you have a certain perception of photography, you don't think that. So here's a really, really quick account of what I think of photography. Uh, Stacey will be sick to death of hearing about this. Um, so here's two views. The orthodox, that's got to be bad, right? And the new, we all like the new, so celebrate the new. Give in to newness is what I say. Right, so here's the orthodox view, right? Very simply. Photography is an automated image rendering process that... Uh, is premised on a mechanical apparatus, the camera, which generates images that are causally and counterfactually dependent upon the scene photograph. That just means, very simply, had the water bottle not been there when I took the photograph of it, it wouldn't have shown up in the, in the photograph. It shows up in the photograph because the photograph is causally dependent on the water bottle, and if I moved the water bottle, then it would not show up in the photograph because it's counterfactually dependent on the presence of the water bottle. Right? This is a very intuitive view of photography. I'm not de denying its plausibility. Right? If your Aunt Mabel wasn't by the Christmas tree, your Aunt Mabel wouldn't have shown up in the photograph taken at Christmas by the tree. Right? 
Um, so, so there's a lot to be said for it. But think about this. One of the problems this theory has, um, and I've just given you a very schematic view of it, is that it does much better at explaining photography's epistemic values than its aesthetic values, right? So you can understand why photography would be used in science, in medicine, in legal and forensic contexts because of this causal and counterfactual dependency on the world, right? But what's doing the work there? What's doing the work is the fact that it's not hostage to fallibility of, sub of human agents, right? So if the camera records the crime scene and there's no indentation in the grass, then you assume there was no indentation in the grass. If the uh, court artist records the crime scene and there's no indentation in the grass, well, it's always an open question, were they just not paying attention, right? So this model of thinking about photography dovetails neatly with a set of intuitions we have about his epicenter values. But for just that reason, it has difficulty, it seems to me, accounting for our aesthetic valuations of photography for just the same reason, right? Why do we look at the artworks of one artist rather than another? Well, we're interested in what that artist thematizes, how they go about selecting from the world, and what they think is salient. But that's precisely what photography is supposed to bypass on this picture, right? So the epistemic value comes at the cost of the aesthetic value. And that's going to be a problem if you're interested in defending photography as art. Right. So here's a different way of thinking about photography. What's different about it is how it marks the difference between photographs and other forms of image making. And the crucial point is it's not premised on a distinction between machine-made and hand-made images. Right? That's how the traditional theory does it. Because the photograph's made by a machine, that it's not hostage to the vagaries of a draftsman or the draftsman's attention, and so on. So this uh, view won't distinguish photographs from paintings or drawings in terms of mechanical apparatus, automaticity, natural counterfactual dependent imagery, or any of that. Simply, it wants to know does that image implicate, just say, necessarily involve an event of recording uh, light in its causal history? Right now, at this point, you might think, well, that's hardly news, right? I mean, photography, writing with light, it isn't news, right? It's a reminder of what we should already know, right? So, in a way, this is an attempt to remind us of something that's been forgotten, that what should do the work in the theory of photography is light, right? Not mechanism, not automatism, or any of that stuff, it's light. Light having a particular function, which is light forms the image. Okay, so you might think that's hardly news. So here's how Patrick Maynard, who I think of as being the original of this view, describes photography. Photography is a branching family of technologies with different uses whose common stem is simply the physical marking of surfaces, surfaces sorry, through the agency of light and other radiations. Just take a moment to look at what's not in that characterization. Right? No mention of mechanism, no mention of counterfactual dependence, no, no mention of automatic processing or anything. It's all gone, right? All that matters for Maynard is the role of light in forming the image. Okay? Now, so it doesn't mention any of that. 
Um, that has a, one very immediate upshot, which is important for me. If you're not understanding photography in terms of this, <coughs> you need not understand photography primarily in terms of its re the relation between a photograph and what a photograph is of. Right? Because all that stuff was meant to capture what was distinctive about the relation between the photograph and what the photograph is of. Okay. Maynard is saying, take the emphasis off the product and put the emphasis on the means of generation of the product, the process. That allows him not to build in at the outset, unargued at the outset, any sort of ground level commitments or assumptions about resemblance, reference, realism, all the ways in which we standardly think of photography. Right? Which then, if you do, as it were, allow those to unreflectively get into your theory at the ground level, you then have to account for, right? And that sends your theory in a particular direction. So you can see um, the sympathy of a view like this for trying to make sense of abstraction in photography. Because the problem of abstraction is the lack of reference. Right, okay. So, now, the crucial thing to motivate why we should, um, why we should sign up to the new theory rather than the old theory is a point it makes about a commitment in the old theory that turns out to be insupportable. So there is a view, right? You hold up your camera, click. You have a photograph. Right? You have a photograph when the light-sensitive surface is exposed to light. The photograph is and it turns out that although our, you know, our iPhones and all our equipment is so quick that we don't recognize the functional, functional and conceptually distinct stages of what goes in to make up an image, that assumption turns out to be false. Right? It turns out to be false in both the analog and the digital case. Right, so let me motivate that. Um, so think about the analog case. Those of you who are old enough, think about the analog case. Imagine, you know, you, you're taking pictures with your children and they want to see the picture and they open the back of the camera, right? All you've done is you've got the film because there is no picture yet, right? There's a latent image and that latent image is going to need to be processed before it becomes visually appreciable. And no one denies that photographs are the kind of things we can visually appreciate. So mere exposure to light won't do it in the analog case, right? What about the digital case where everything seems so immediate? Well, think about what happens when you expose the sensor, right? Even if you know nothing about technology, what you've done is you've caused electrical charges from pixels in the sensor to fire or not fire. The bucket, the light bucket that is a pixel, is either full or not full of light, right? They're called capacitors, right? So the, the surface of the sensor, CCD just stands for closed coupled device, that's kind of sensor in the camera, emits charges on or off. Right, zeros and ones, it's binary code. Have you got a photograph? No. Right? You've got code. Right? Were you to display it on the screen, you would see millions of zeros and ones for every image. You've just got binary code. So you need to process that code through a software program. In fact, you need to process it through several stages of software. Imagine were you to process it not through an image rendering software, but through a sound rendering software. You would get noise. And that, you would, shows there's a distinction to be made between the information stored, the zeros and ones, and the software required to output that information in a visible form. So digital processing has the same role that 
chemical processing has in analog photography. Until it's been done, you don't have an image. Right? So mere exposure to light doesn't give you an image. Right? So more is required. Okay. This gives you the key difference. The difference is this. If you're an orthodox theorist, you're going to think a photographic event, which is just to say that a recording of a light image is sufficient. If you're a new theorist, you're going to think, no, it's just necessary. You have yet to get enough to give you photograph. Okay. If it's just necessary, then all the subsequent stages that are required to generate a photograph are part of photography, strict to sensitive, right? Photography proper. They're not outside, they're not merely sort of optional, they're required. And that means that any time the photographer acts internal to one of those stages, they're acting internally to photography, strict, strictly speaking. Right? Now, those stages can be automated, but they need not be. The problem with the orthodox view is it mistakes the fact that they often are automated for something true of photography in general. So, and this is a claim that's true historically. Right? So, uh, okay, so this is, uh, this, is my, this is my idea of the sort of nadir of photography, but if you're a sort of, if you have Victorian sensibilities, you might like it more than me. This is called <laughs> fading away at the top, a bit of Victorian schmaltz about the woman dying of consumption, and this is bringing in the May. Now, the, in, the reason why I'm showing them to you by Henry Peach Robinson is that one involves five different negatives, and this one involves nine, right? So they are Victorian equivalents to digital montage, right? They are not causally and counterfactually dependent on any one spatio-temporally continuous scene. Uh, Jerry Olsman's uh, surrealist kind of photographer who used multiple larges to generate these kinds of things from 1950s, 60s, 70s. Uh, this is an interesting one. That looks straight, right? That's Frank Hurley, a Australian First World War photographer, um, but it's not possible in 1917 to capture an image like that using the, you know, the vast cameras that photographers had to lug around in the trenches. So, in fact, it's comprised of 11 distinct negatives. Um, this one you probably, well, some of you would be familiar with. This is Jeff Wall, Dead Troops Talk. Um, widely thought to be based on the composition of Jericho's Raft of the Medusa, in which various soldiers ambushed in Afghanistan with the tops of their heads missing engaged in a conversation, right? Dead troops talk. Um, okay, so it's sort of obvious that's not straight, right? Um, if it isn't obvious, uh, this model appears twice, once with its head blown off. Um, so the point here is just to say this has been a long-standing possibility in the history of the medium, which you have to exclude if you say um, that photographs must, according to the orthodox account, have all that armature of being counterfactually dependent on scenes and so on, and being mechanistic and so on. This, just as a last example, is one of my, one of my particular favourites. This is called uh, Flooded Grave, also by Jeff Wall. The small images on the right are, um, they're like, um, you know those scenes you get of movies being shot, sort of production stills of the movie being shot? So, so Wall is a kind of cinematic photographer. So he, he has landscape shots from the graveyard. He has a grave constructed in his studio. Then he goes out fishing in the Pacific for um, marine life, 
which he populates the grave with. So when you look into the flooded grave, you'll see starfish and all sorts of things that couldn't possibly be there. Well, it could possibly be there, but it's very unlikely. Right? Um, okay. Or another image that looks straight, gust of wind, until you know that it's based on Hoffa's life. And it's actually comprised of 50 individual um, heart images, which require him going back at the same time of year, over three years, to the same light, um, to get it right. I, I personally have always thought the hat is a little bit too big, you know, for where it is in the photograph. But, okay, and if, if it's not obvious, right, there's one. Right. Uh, Berlin's stat bibliothek. Okay, so that's a lot of just showing you, softening you up, as it were, um, that these examples are legion, and they can't be ruled out on non-sequitive grounds, right? So they give ammunition to the new theory. You can't rule them out like this, right? This would be to beg the question. Imagine you were to reason P photographed is not counterfactually dependent on its source. All photographs are naturally counterfactually dependent on their sources. Therefore, P is not and cannot be a photograph. But this, which is being assumed here, is precisely what's in question, right? So that's just to beg the question. And that a lot of the responses to those kind of images think like that. Okay. So what's doing the work here is that some images are made with photographic technologies and some are not, and all that matters is whether the image implicates such um, a recording of a life image in its causal history, irrespective of whether it preserves natural counterfactual dependency and all the rest of it. So I'm just going to end this little run-through of my view of photography with this little nugget from Don Lopez. Right? So this is Don's way of formalising this view. And what's important here is the, the independence of the two clauses. So he says, an item is a photograph if and only if it's an image that is a product of a photographic process where a photographic process includes a photographic event, that's the light recording part, as well as processes for the production of images, right? But look, clause one secures the difference with non-photographic images. That means what happens here can be anything photographers want it to be, right? They can paint. Because as long as they've instantiated clause one, they've got something that's sufficient to differentiate it from a painting. So what, what's the view of orthodoxy from the Heights New Theory? It's that orthodoxy conflates what's true of a general, wide and important body of photographs, the photographs that are counterfactually dependent on their sources, for something that's necessarily true of photography per se. Any of that. Okay, so here's what we see. I've given you a view of abstraction. I've given you a view of photography. Now, I won't read it out. Um, it's basically what I've been talking about. Okay, now we're on to answering the question. What is abstraction in photography? How, how am I doing the time? Okay, fine, then I'm perfect. I'm perfect, that's fine. Okay, so. What I'm going to do at this point is just offer you a very rough and ready taxonomy. And I'm not, you know, I think there's all sorts of kind of issues around the edges of this taxonomy, and there are pictures that I go back and forth on as to where they belong in the taxonomy. So I'm not going to sort of, as we're, defend this tooth and nail, but I just want to bring out some broad differences. So the first, and the, okay, just, I should say this. So the only exhibition I'm aware of <laughs> on abstract photography is this 
It's called The Edge of Vision. This is a 300-page book that never once, even informally, tries to define the term abstraction. Right? It's a book about abstract photography. And there's all sorts of things in here that could not possibly be abstract according to the same definition. Right? So I just want to draw on some of the kinds of examples in this book and make some broad distinctions between them. Um, so the first thing I'm going to talk about is proto-abstraction. So I think of this as being, as it were, on the way to abstraction. Okay. So this is widely associated with modernist photographers. Um, it tends to foreground the design elements of the image. It often has sort of bold gestalts um, or unusual points of view, points of view that throw the design policies of the image into um, sort of relief. Um, it's influenced, I think, by abstraction in other media, which photography was slower to follow, as were all the ways giving up figuration. But insofar as it still involves recognition of volumetric form, it can't be abstraction proper on my account, right? So, you know what I'm looking at? Paul Strand. So, a few images by Paul Strand, some more proto-abstract than others. Uh, that's viewed from a viaduct. Wall Street, I mean, clearly it's not abstract, right? But it has strong design properties. Um, what about that? Anyone know who that is? Yes, Edward Weston. Uh, that's his cabbage leaf. Um, also, Edward Weston, getting closer to abstraction, you might think. These are his images of the Oceano Dunes. Is that California, I think? Not sure. Um, somewhere in the west of America. Um, yeah, so this one, I've, uh, this is um, a famous image called By Bud by Andre Curtis. Clearly, it's, you, you can recognize things in it, but you can't immediately make sense of the spatial relations, right? So something has been done through the point of view, and Curtis is a master of this, through the point of view to, as it were, bring, to tip up the background to the surface of the image, right? So it's obviously photographed from above, and there's two different planes at, at odd angles to each other. Um, that's a bit more straightforward. That's also Andre Curtis. Um, that's interesting. That's Rodchenko, um, the Berlin radio tower. Also Rodchenko. And you notice that a lot of these involve slightly disorienting views uh, that the delay recognition. Um, this is uh, very, uh, well, my, in my view, really strong work from the 70s by Lewis Foltz called Elements. Um, and you might think of this as being a kind of contemporary inheritor of proto abstraction. That's a satisfied sigh. That's what I like to hear, right? Yeah, they're great images, I think. Okay, so that's proto abstraction. Now I'm going to talk about something that's called faux abstraction, and I put a star there so I can remind you. Faux descriptively, not normatively. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Right? I just don't think it's actually abstraction. Right, so what's faux abstraction? Faux abstraction is something that's rife in photography and it's a, a kind of defamiliarization or estrangement of an object from its environment in such a way as to delay that recognition of that object. Okay. Um, so it's essentially a form of, it relies on framing and isolation. Um, and interestingly, to my mind anyway, it trades on a certain orthodox set of assumptions because what's going on in a faux abstract image is you're like going, ha, 
the world really can look like that. Why do you think that? Well, because photography depends on the world in a certain way. And the, the delight that these images can cause is to do with having that assumption about photography and the photographer using it in such a way as to give you a strange view of the world that you didn't think the world would look like that. Right, now, our, I think there's, it's not clear whether there's a hard and fast distinction between faux abstraction and proto-abstraction. In fact, I'm inclined to think that proto-abstraction may be a special case of faux abstraction because you, can, you can't abstract without estranging, but you can estrange without abstracting. I think, right? Anyone speak Czech here? I never know how to pronounce this photographer's name. Jaromir Funk, I think, is a Czech photographer. This is actually called nicely abstract photo. Um, <laughs> in fact, all of the images from Funk that I'm going to show you are called abstract photo. On my account, they're faux abstraction, right? They are strange, they delay recognition, um, but they're not, but they don't, as it were, prevent you from seeing something bordering on the physical in the image. These are uh, interesting images by a mid-century American photographer called Minor White. Um, look at that one. What is that? Can you work out what that is? So I think that's looking down at the surface of the water from sort of cliffs to things like maybe ducks or something floating on the water. Um, hard to read, but nonetheless showing you the world. So, Man Ray, Bill Brown. So it can go in different directions. Okay, that's photo abstraction, right? Now weak abstraction. Weak star, not prejudicial, right? It's fine to be weak. Right. So weak abstraction, on my view, is where you're just on, just on the cusp of, uh, of abstraction proper in the sense that it does in fact record the world, but it, it records it in such a way that it's not non-ambiguously apparent that it records the world, right? So photography is really well suited to this because you can find almost these sort of bits of the world anywhere. If I take a photograph of this, I can record this bit of the world in such a way as just to create an abstract image, like planes of color in relation to each other, but I did it by recording the world. Right? So various images I'm going to show you now um, do this to a greater or lesser extent. Um, so we may not know that we're seeing the world in all of these. In fact, I think we do know most of the ones I'm going to show you, but we are in fact. Um, and I think this thought about photography, why I said I was sympathetic to the view at the beginning that photography is intrinsically abstract, is it's this capacity of photography to abstract, cut out, isolate a bit of the world that makes this particularly suitable to photography. So this is Aaron Siskin, often widely called an abstract photographer, but I'm just not sure whether that's right. Weakly abstract, in my view. All made by photographing, you know, walls with tear and paper and so on. Uh, this is a contemporary photographer I recently came across in Belgium, Bert Denkertz.
few remarks about methodology. Okay, so at one point when I was writing this, it occurred to me that some of the decisions one might make about where one places images would depend on certain prior methodological commitments, right? Um, and that's just sort of interesting as a sort of side note, which is to say that if your theory was premised on something like viewer experience, then you're going to say that some of those images are properly abstract, right? Insofar as you only experience non-volumetric seeing of relations of depth and so on, then they are abstract, right? But if your, your theory is premised on whether an image does or does not in fact record the world, then they won't be abstract. So the orthodox theorists will have to take the latter. They'll have to say, look, in my example here, you took a picture of this little arrangement and you generated something that looked perfectly abstract, it's no problem for me, the orthodox theorist, because it does, in fact, record the world. Right? They have to take that route. Right? Um, the new theorist need not. Right? So the new theorist is sort of uncommitted on this question. Right? So there's nothing internal to new theorist assumptions that require them to say, because they don't have a view of photography according to which it records the world, that requires them to say, um, if it records the world, it's not abstract. Um, so images will come out differently depending on these methodological assumptions. And for the sort of depiction of the audience, I'll just say I think Rob Hobbs is going to have a problem at this point. Because Rob is committed to an experience resemblance view in the philosophy of pictures, but he thinks photographs are a active pictorial experience. So I think these kind of examples may create a problem for him because he's an orthodox theorist. Anyway, that's just for the, the geeks in the audience. Right, strong abstraction. So strong abstraction, contrary to weak abstraction, is when you, as it were, construct the image from the ground up. There is no recording of a prior world. So uh, there are various names for this in the literature. Don Lopez has called it lyrical photography. Gottfried Jaeger calls it con concrete or constructive photography. The basic idea is that the, the image you see is a pure artifact of the photographic process. There is no prior photographic scene. Um, so orthodox theorists will have to say they can't be photographs. They just have to. They can't admit them. Right? New theorists won't have that problem. Right. So what would be examples of this? Anyone know that what that is? Who's that? Tillmans. Yes, right. This is your um, Wolfgang Tillmans. This is from the Freischwimmer series. Um, uh, someone made an interesting comment that I gave this paper in Kent and said, oh yeah, but look, volumetric form. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe that's a problem case. Anyway. Uh, Walid Beshti, a West Coast contemporary California photographer who makes photographs by doing interesting things like this. So the way these photographs are made is he constructs models, sort of, you know, various, various complexity paper models, um, and exposes those models to different colored lights on different sides. He then, using photographic paper, right, he then unfolds the paper and processes it. And that is, as it were, the unfolded bit of photographic paper that made the model that was exposed to different colored lights. Very complex relation to a recording event. Right? Or take these images by James Wellings, who's a photographer I've worked very closely with. Um, he 
makes these in the darkroom. And uh, I'll just tell you if I've got, have I got like one minute to describe the process? Uh, I'll describe, yeah. So I'll just tell you about how these are made. So what Welling does is he takes strips of paper, he um, drops them on a surface in the darkroom, and he exposes that surface to light, right? So at some points, the paper includes the surface, right? The surface that he's exposing to light may be a sheet of photographic paper, or it may be a sheet of photographic film. In either case, the bit that's non-occluded will darken because it's been exposed to light, and the bit that hasn't been exposed to light will remain either white in the case of paper or clear in the case of film. Nothing's happened to it. If he uses film, at the end of the process, what he's effectively done is made a negative, right? Because now he's got a sheet of film that's got a relation of, an inverted relation of lights and darks. Where there was paper, it's clear, and where there wasn't paper, it's dark, right? He can now put that negative that he's made, constructed from scratch in the darkroom, into the enlarger and print it like a normal negative, re-reversing the black and white. So what you get is a guy who makes his own negatives in the darkroom. Right? He can add colour to the neg by sandwiching coloured gels in the enlarger. So there's a whole pro sort of complex process. I can talk more about the way these images are made. But the point is that all of this is just going to be outside the bounds of photography, strictly speaking, if you have a certain way of understanding photography. But it isn't going to be outside the bounds if you think that image rendering, for example, is a necessary component of photography, which can be automated, but need not be. Uh, I'll just say one thing about these ones, because these are particularly interesting. So this is from the series Water. What you're actually looking at is a prior semi-liquid state of the surface you are currently seeing. I mean, not here, because you're seeing a projection, but if you were seeing the real thing, what he's done is he's submerged a sheet of photographic paper in liquid, the liquid frees up the dyes on the photograph surface, he then exposes the, that photographic paper with the dyes swirling around, and then he prints and fixes it. So you're seeing, when you look at the photograph, a prior semi-liquid state of the surface you were looking at, right? So that could, what, what's going on there? He's drawing attention to the labor of photography, what he's done. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing an index of what the artist has done. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll just say one thing and then I'll conclude. So I won't talk about photographs. I think photographs are potentially problematic for my account, but I'll just leave that to one side. I'll just say that on this account, not everything, <laughs> you may think that I'm sort of like completely open-minded and permissive and, you know, everything counts, but it doesn't, right? So there are plenty of things that are made with um, photographic materials which are included in books on um, abstract photography that aren't even photographs on my account. Right, so let me give you some examples. Marco Breuer, made by basically doing various things to a sheet of photographic paper to denature the surface. Right? When he burns them, I'm not sure what to think about that, because you might think, well, that's a bit like a light exposure, right? Um, but it depends what's doing the work, whether it's, what, what's doing the work there? Is it heat or is it, yeah, so I'm not sure. Um, interesting, uh, borderline cases, but basically it seems to me this is a kind of drawing practice using photographic materials. Or um, Susan, um, no, Ellen Carey. I, 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 I wrote to Ellen Carey to ask her how these were made, and I have received, like, I cannot tell you how many emails, and I'm still unclear, but it's not because I'm being obtuse. <laughs> it's just, yeah, 
So I have asked that I've just got the deluge of emails. Anyway, so what I can gather is, is that basically what she does is she puts large sheets of photographic paper into a, um, what's called a land Polaroid camera, it's a very large format Polaroid camera. She pulls the paper through further than the point at which you're supposed to stop pulling, and that bursts the pods of dye in the paper. She does expose it to light um, whilst doing this, but she discards the bit that's been exposed to light, and what you get is the runoffs of the ink. So I don't think they're photographs, right? Because the light exposure is not relevant. Okay, I'm not going to talk about photograms. I'm just going to conclude. Yes. Okay. So if I had talked about photographs, I would tell you that abstraction is as old as photography itself. Henry Boxhalder. Right. So what's my what's the sort of upshot of all this? So I think there's no special problem of abstraction in photography. Um, the pressure to think that there's a special problem is either the product of a bad theory of photography or a bad theory of abstraction or both. Um, abstraction in photography may in fact be as old as photography itself, if I talk to you about photograms and Henry Boxhalder. And abstract photography is not one thing. There are diverse kinds, forms or grades of abstraction. Um, and some images may be abstract on grounds of appearance, mode of manufacture. <laughs> this happens at work as well. It's like there's a certain department in every university that sends people around to randomly interrupt <laughs> lectures. Just in case everyone's falling asleep. Um, yeah, okay, so, but we're always on, so it's okay. Right, so what is abstraction in photography? Abstraction is just one way in which photographers can explore the possibility space of photography, and that space is much more generous than is typically assumed. Thank you. <laughs>